The Secret World Chronicle, a podcast series created by Mercedes Lackey and Steve Lippin. Changing Faces, Part 1, written by Dennis Lee, read by Veronica Jaguer. In a perfect world, well, in my perfect world, things would still be chaotic. I know I'm in the minority here. If you're one of those people who strive for that great job of security with regular cash showers in your ten-acre estate, I'm sorry. I just don't get you. I can't think of any place more boring than the common perception of paradise. To have everything you want, when you want it, when would you ever feel your blood rushing through your veins with the bit caught in your teeth, riding in the razor's edge with a wind of flames at your back? See, I need the rush, and for that some would call me a thrill-seeker. It's a trait that gets a lot of people killed. I've seen it, believe me. <laughs> I once knew this crazy bastard called Gash. Big guy. Loved movies with midgets in them, and dainty blondes he could pick up with one arm, and he had this weird thing for... badgers. Don't ask. But what Gash loved more than anything was speed. He'd get into anything with propulsion just to see how fast it would go. This one time, he got some booster rockets, right? Don't ask me how, but he did. And then he... Wait. Long story. And the stuff about the badgers would haunt you. So, thrill-seeking. I don't think it applies. Not to me. Not entirely, anyway. Risking your neck for nothing more than thrills can get real old, real fast. There has to be more. There has to be... Well, yeah, there has to be women. And pardon me for saying it, as women make up a good part of why I'm alive, but even that's not enough. Fame? Yes, that works for some. Money? Definite bonuses there. Beating the other guy? Oh man, nothing gets it done like competition. So that's where you'll find me. High risk, high stakes. It brings out the masters, and I am a master, if I do say so myself. I never got caught. Not until that day. And I don't even think that day counts. I know. A master doesn't let his surroundings or the situation get to him. He stays on the job, he keeps focus, and he wins his prize. But you have to understand. That day was the worst day. Ever. That was the day the world blew up. That was the day the grand old game ended and a new one began. A new game with impossible enemies not after the prize, but for blood. Who am I? Red Genie, at your service. Chameleon, acrobat, mercenary, and lover. And this is how, from my perspective, it all began. Let me paint you a mental picture. Three men and a woman get out of a dark, sporty sedan. Something has their attention. They are watching a group of masked idiots with guns running into a bank. Notice the four people are wincing. They're not wincing in fear. Together, these four have run gauntlets of jagged metal rain and poison gas. Combat, while avoided when possible, is second nature to them. The last time they were here in Atlanta, they were forced into an open street battle with a Mach 2 and her flunkies, though that fight had cost them months because it forced a retreat into the labyrinths of America's metahuman underground. They're not wincing in disbelief. The idea of robbers doing that old and tired bit of holding up a bank in broad daylight, and in one of the most echo-populated cities in the world, might seem absurd. But let's remember something. In every demographic, from world leaders to the criminal element, you're going to find some really stupid people. So no, not fear, and not disbelief. These people are wincing in anger. For about a month now, they'd been planning a job of their own. A heist like this in Atlanta has to be done carefully. You had to get in, grab the goods, get out, and get away, without anyone even knowing you were there. If so much as a brief physical description got out, Echo would be on you within a day, a week tops. 
Say what you want about the showmanship and flash of Echo agents. They were damned good at their jobs, and countermeasures had to be taken. This crew had learned that lesson once the hard way. To do this job, they had to be invisible. And that's where I come in. If you haven't already guessed, I'm one of the four. Not the short man drowning in muscles, and not the man who's as thin as a rail and sporting a long beak nose, and obviously not the gorgeous brunette with the legs that go up to her neck. I'm the elderly driver with the withered, beaten-down-by-life expression, with the beer gut hanging over a cheap imitation leather belt, and sporting a worn polyester security guard uniform bearing a cracked plastic name tag for a Walter Semsdale. Not what you expected, huh? Well, that's the point. If you know how, you can be invisible in plain sight. We had planned and trained and waited for the day of the All-Star Game, the day that the majority of security forces in the city would be concentrated on the other end of town. We had charted rapid routes of escape, memorized the full layout of the bank, and, more importantly, of the secret bunker underneath where items of immeasurable wealth and importance were often kept. Simply nicknamed the Vault, this was the most secure facility in the city, after the main Echo headquarters, hidden beneath a facade of a medium security investment group and banking outlet, and we knew the place cold now. We had studied this job from every angle, and we realized it could only be done one way, just the one, if we were going to get out with no fuss. This had to be an inside job. Like most high-security places, the design is to keep people out, and not so much in. Study any blueprint of a vault or fortress and you'll see it. A group starting at the heart of the place can work their way out, disabling alarms, taking out cameras, and incapacitating armed resistance with just a little coordination. But the worst-case scenario, whether you're heading in or out, is an alarm being triggered. Once the entire place is up in arms, the jig is up, and the odds of surviving, let alone reaching your prize, are slim. Hey, I love a challenge but I hate suicidal runs. The object is to live to tell the tale, you know? So we needed an inside man, but the last thing we needed was another person to siphon off a split of the take. Enter Walter Semsdale. Walter's one of the senior security staff at the vault, and while he doesn't hold top-level clearance, he can walk in through the front door, descend from the public bank above, and into the vault's inner sanctum. And he has access to the main monitor room. He's also a 49-year-old divorcee who suffers from regular cases of gout, indigestion, and epic levels of halitosis. His sense of humor matches his diligence to personal hygiene. I know all this because I just spent the last two weeks getting to know Walter at his favorite watering hole. Didn't take much. A few stories about loose women, buying the first few rounds, and I became Walter's new best friend. I even got to like him, a little. Pathos, I guess. Walter is a world-class loser, and I tend to root for the underdogs. Studying Walter, his mannerisms, his own body stories, and taking in one whore joke after another, I found him an easy mask. Walter is an uncomplicated man, and proved to be one of the simpler people I've studied to impersonate. Probably the hardest part of this job was learning to grow Walter's face. He has that look of a beagle, with folds that droop from his eyes and mouth like his skin is trying to escape. Growing that much skin is a pretty tedious task, even for me. What's that? Oh, right. Guess I should have mentioned it before. I'm a mutant. Don't need to get into all the details right now, but let's just say I'm closer to my skin than anyone else alive. So, Walter. Right now we've got Walter strung up in his home. I'm wearing his uniform, sporting his less-than-dapper looks, and I gotta tell you, this fake beer gut I've got strapped on is hotter than hell. The inside job is the easiest, the safest, and the stealthiest job you can perform. Still, when your mark is a fortress like the vault, it requires a lot of time and energy to plan out. So, when we watch these rank amateurs toting some cheap-ass dime-store-bought hardware rush into the bank, we knew what would happen next. They would get the people cowering on the floor, they would take out what superficial security there was in the bank front, and by doing this, they would trigger the alarm that would put the whole facility, including the vault, on alert. The 
the Walter guys was now useless. I wouldn't be able to get where I needed to, to knock out surveillance and communications, and while we had contingency plans, the one thing we absolutely needed was for me to get in undetected. A whole month of planning, of preparation, wiped out, just like that. Still got that picture of the four of us, mouths open, watching our plans go up in flames? Good. Hold on to it for a second. It gets kind of funny. As mercenaries and thieves for hire, we were used to glitches and the like. I've had maybe four perfect jobs in my life. The rest can range from, we're 20 seconds behind schedule, to, what do you mean you forgot the nitro, to, where did that Mach 2 come from? In each case, we've dealt with it. At times, I admit we've been damned lucky. But this, this was beyond a mere glitch. This was every god in the heavens looking down and saying, We're sorry, but today we will make you our bitches. As one, our faces fell into our hands. The beak-nosed man is Duff Sanction, probably my best and oldest friend. In this game, you need people you can trust, and Duff has pulled more jobs with me than anyone else. He's simply the best safecracker and demolitionist I have ever met. Oddly enough, he's also a craftsman who makes the most delicate works of crystalline glass. So yes, here we have a man who has the patience and meticulous touch of an artist, but loves to blow things up for his day job. He has an odd hot and cold temper to match. A moment before, I'm sure he'd been calculating oxygen balance percentages and composition priorities in his head. These sorts of jobs often called for on-the-fly explosions. Unbelievably, he preferred to make some bombs on the spot. To do that, you need to think fast and with complete certainty, two feats that require a level head. On the other hand, when his temper did go off, the results could be spectacular. I once watched him take out a building with 40 rig sticks of dynamite. Really? It was awesome, and all over a pet peeve that most people have. Wait, sorry. That's a long story. Let's just say that those pigeons will never poop on anyone again. By comparison, I'd say Duff took this setback rather well. He wasn't blowing anything up, just smashing his fist repetitively against the side of the car. When I catch up to these jerk-offs, I'm going to make them choose between choking down TNT or getting bunged up with nitro enemas. He's so gosh darn cute when he's angry. The leggy brunette leaning against the car is John Bede. It might look like she's nodding enthusiastically with Duff's harsh and colorful words, but really, she's just trying not to scream. Too bad. This girl is a great screamer. No, I'm not going to tell you what that means. You already know. John is our gun, our artillery unit. I've lost count of how many times we've just stood back and let her go to work. A one-woman army when situations get tight? You want someone like John standing on a rooftop providing cover fire. The short, muscular man sporting the tan duster and lighting a cigarette is Jack. That's the only name he seems to have, and we gave it to him. Jack and I handle information gathering, and we both plan the jobs, but in the field he calls the shots. I've never seen him angry, or frustrated, or even crack a smile. He's ice, and always knows what to do. Hell, Jack knows how to do just almost anything, or at least it seems that way. God knows how many of our jobs have needed some weird exotic skill set, and wouldn't you know it, Jack always seemed to have the know-how. Hence his name. A nickname. Jack of all trades. Back in the car. Jack's voice was as gruff as he was short. Red, drive us around. We'll find some cover and park. Once there, we'll suit up. I wasn't looking. I was still watching the bank, but I could feel John and Duff stare at Jack in disbelief. He was proposing to hit the vault head-on, not by the easier route of guile through the bank front, but a full frontal assault on the heavily guarded rear-access blast doors, the one thing all of our scheming and preparation had worked to avoid. Maximum security, and even if the place wasn't on high alert now, getting in would be tantamount to a last defiant act of suicide. He's right. I remember saying, cutting off any protest they would have. All of them reasonable, I might add. But this time we had dug ourselves in as deep as we could go. We're committed, we have to do this. Get in the damned car. A pause, with just a moment of temerity, 
but all Duff did was mutter and climb back into the rear seat. John did the same, but I have to use a different word for her. She did it with a sass. It had taken them a moment, but it was dawning on them. Jack and I were not asking them to go all butch and Sundance. We were proceeding with the only course of action that allowed a hope of survival. You see, we were on Mr. Tonda's dime. You've heard of Tonda. You must have. He'd gotten so successful as a crime kingpin that his name had escaped the whispered frightened tones of the underground and into modern pop culture. There were songs written about him, and at the time the latest craze in TV villains were barely concealed imitations of his rumored existence. Most consider him an urban myth, but trust me, he's real. Echo knew about him, too, but this man had managed to stay out of their reach for over a decade. He was just that good. If you happened to be good enough to land a job for him, your reputation was made. He had his favorites, and he didn't hire new blood that often. Still, every once in a while, one of his favorites would screw the pooch, and Tonda's got this zero-tolerance policy. You don't mess up. You just don't. Fail and you're dead. It was just that simple and one of the secrets to his success. Fail in a spectacular fashion, and he would see you live just a little bit longer. You just wouldn't want to. Keep in mind his assassins and torturers were under the zero-tolerance policy, too. I was the one who pushed for this job. Working for Tonda was only for those at the top of their game. I had been working this for ten years, and I knew we were good, maybe even the best. Still, it took a lot of fast talking to get Jack and the others to agree to it. Tonda's rep is about as unsavory as you can get. We approached Tonda, and that wasn't easy either, I can tell you. He seemed impressed that we had found him and landed us this job. So here we were. The brass ring had been dangling in front of us for a month, and wouldn't you know it, just as we were closing in, the window of opportunity had grown some pretty scary-looking teeth. I shared a brief look with Jack. Told you, was all he said before climbing into the passenger seat. I got in and gunned the engine. So much for fun. The game had turned into the ultimate contest, our lives on the line, and with little hope for success. All right. I said, guiding the sedan around the facility. Let's get to work. In times of uncertainty, we've abandoned jobs, split up, and vanished. Whether in the initial stages of planning a heist or minutes away from our mark, if things looked too dicey, we booked. That's the nature of the game. When we felt the law, we dropped everything and left, and we disappeared for a while. And I mean disappeared, brother. We left a cold, cold trail and gave the hounds little incentive to track us down. We never underestimated the detectives, especially ones with access to metahuman talents. They had ways to pick up on anything, no matter how insignificant, so time was the only thing we could leave in our wake. What we were about to do was in direct violation of all we had learned counter to every method of guile and misdirection we had honed in our five years together. This, this was an all-out assault, and it demanded flawless execution. There was no time for subtlety. Just getting to the goods now meant a quick death to anyone who got in our way. We weren't fooling ourselves about the consequences. This sort of kick-in-the-door approach guaranteed us being made. Made, and linked to multiple homicides. We might as well have faxed our vitals to Echo Headquarters. We were so screwed. Our previous record of a few thefts and a minor brawl with a meta-ops training team had kept our perceived threat level low. Infiltration of the vault and the massacre of security personnel rated astronomically higher. You didn't just walk away from something like that. This act would rocket us to Echo's most wanted list. This time, we would have to go into hiding for years. We each had our own way of dealing with that knowledge. John had started taking deep breaths. Trust me when I say that's bad. It meant she was building up a thirst for some messy violence. She dealt with problems the only way she could. In her mind, any conflict or argument could be resolved with her guns. Sudden ambush? Spray down a little cover fire. Victims getting away? Clip them in the legs a few times. 
Red wants to give S&M a try? A clean shot through the shoulder should shut him up. She was still taking deep breaths when she left for a final reconnaissance. When agitated, Duff would usually babble in a constant stream of descriptive cursing, often involving an adversary's mother in various states of humiliation and affliction. As I watched him strap on his gear, I couldn't help but notice that this time he was strangely quiet, and he was shaking. That was a first. Was he scared? Well, I'm sure he was. We were all scared. Don't let the calm exterior fool you. I get scared a lot. You learn to use fear, though. That shot of adrenaline tends to fire up all five senses, six in my case. Being in tune with my skin carried a lot of advantages, including a radial awareness. The more skin I had exposed, the more I could sense from my immediate surroundings. I caught a quick, furtive look from Duff. He blanched as I watched and quickly turned back to his guns. Another first, and a bad sign. We needed him at his best, and I was beginning to wonder if we should turn back after all. Jack was obviously thinking the same. As he climbed into his flak suit, his eyes were buzzing like he had hit REM sleep. It was one of Jack's few tells. His mind must have been absolutely racing to deal with our current predicament. Did we have any alternatives left to us? He knew we didn't. We all knew it. It came down to who we were most afraid of. Echo or Tonda? No contest there. Both had formidable resources and drive, but there were extremes the law-abiding Echo people wouldn't go to. Jack, who persisted in his belief that there were always options, was pondering the angles and looking for loopholes. And for once, he wasn't seeing any. For Jack, that must have been torture. I was going through my own brand of hell. Unless your nerve endings have been rewired to perceive pain as pleasure, self-mutilation is not fun. Still, it was an emergency, so I took my X-Acto knife and slit my face along the hairline, sides, under the chin, and around my eyes. Reaching up, I took several deep breaths and tore my face off. Nothing like immediate searing pain to take your mind off a dismal future. Did it hurt? Of course it hurt. Hello, I tore my face off. My face, off. It always hurts. Under normal circumstances, I like to grow a new face slowly. Usually takes about a day. It's relatively painless, and I can start and stop as I choose to slough off the old look and get the base foundation going, followed by attention to fine details. In emergencies, I can grow a new look within a few minutes, but I have to start from scratch and build it up. I'm incapacitated during this time, forced to stare at my blood-soaked, skinless face regenerate epidermal layers in a mirror. It takes a lot of concentration. It's a struggle to keep a careful watch on where and how the new layers are forming and to not vomit at the same time. Also, there's the screaming. It takes a lot to keep from screaming. The face was just about done. A young man's face with dumpy features when I started pulling on an imitation Echo uniform. The suit was made of a tough polyester double-knit blend and wouldn't fool the guards up close. From a distance, however, it would pass. Enough to let me get in close, and then it would hardly matter. I selected a trim blonde wig from my costume kit, glued it on, and went to work pasting on the eyebrows. While I could regenerate skin quickly enough, hair was another matter. Keeping a shaved scalp helped. Wigs were easy enough to switch out. John returned. She was still breathing heavily and was now sporting a disgusted scowl. We've got a potential problem, John reported. I saw that handsome devil guy pull up and enter the bank. For the other robbery? Jack asked. Don't think so. He didn't have the usual backup. Maybe he's just here by chance. A lot of that happening today, I muttered, pulling on my visor. We might have to deal with a meta now. This change anything? No, Jack said. We proceed as planned. If we do this right, we might not even see him. If he shows, perforate him. Use everything you have. I don't know, Duff snarled. 
I've heard he can't be hit. He's too lucky. Everybody's luck runs out, Jack replied. Even his. Hell, ours just did. We've got one shot at this, with just one thing going for us. No one's ever tried this before. No one's been stupid enough, I grunted, pulling on my boots. Yep, but that gives us the element of surprise. We've done jobs with less. Let's go. We're losing our window. As the others got into position, I started a deliberate march to the guardhouse, my hands behind me, my fingers starting to elongate into pointed claws. More than anything, I didn't want to be here. After the initial strike, my disguises would be worthless. This was an artful infiltration. It was intentional slaughter. And for the first time, right when the rush should have been kicking in, I hated my job. This wasn't what I did. John got off on killing. I'm a different kind of pro. Killing is the last resort. The very last resort. Not that I hadn't done it, but not often. And not like this. Hey, you're not an echo op. I had tried to look relaxed. Difficult when your entire body was a coiled spring. The guard's cry was the signal. I tackled the desk guard, thrust up his chin with one hand, and drove my claws into his throat with the other. He wouldn't be able to trigger the main alarm. I felt dirty. Jack started the clock, and in the corner of my visor I watched the heads-up display come on and the first countdown begin. With one guard down, we had given ourselves a ten-second window to eliminate the other two. Shattered glass and gurgling told me John had sniped the man in the other guardhouse. Jack moved in with silent pistols, and a stream of lead slammed into the last, the roving sentry. We hauled the bodies from sight while Duff pulled up in the sedan. Checkpoint one was clear. But the exterior guard post, like the bank front, was largely a facade. The real obstacle was inside, and the numerous cameras painting the area had surely alerted checkpoint two of our presence. On his mark, Jack and I both hit the sync release buttons in the two guardhouses, and as tunnel doors opened, we all dove into the car. From above, at street level, we heard a tremendous explosion, then more explosions in the distance. We didn't really have time to consider what this meant. If anything, we were thankful for whatever diversion that other robbery was bringing to the mix. Jack reset the clock. Twenty seconds. At the base of the 100-foot tunnel and flanking the heavy blast door, twin-mounted Gatling guns encased within swiveling metal spheres provided the main defense for this checkpoint. Each was loaded with a steady stream of 20-millimeter shells fed through the ground from the well-stocked ammo depot that lay beyond. Able to deliver over a thousand rounds a minute, these guns packed enough punch to bring down a tank. The Gats made this a well-fortified choke point, enough to hold off any major offensive. If you gave them the 20 seconds they needed to man the guns and secure the blast door. We had run a few simulations in case this would happen. Jack wasn't wrong about the element of surprise. We had gone over the schematics of this place until we saw the layout in our sleep. While the vault looked impenetrable on paper, it had never been battle-tested. They ran drills, we were sure of that. But a real assault is a scary thing. We were banking it all on their inexperience, in the hopes of a few moments of hesitation. Duff hit the accelerator, and we flew down the tunnel. John and Jack took a moment to switch their guns with the rifles that lay in the rear seats. The large blast door was closing, and two figures appeared, one in each turret. Damn it! We'd underestimated them. There was no hesitation on their part. As we hit the lower fringe of the ramp, they opened fire. We were saved by momentum. The stream of bullets disintegrated the front grille and bit into the engine. The force was enough to slow us down, but not quite enough. Jack had run the numbers to prove that, so far as it could be proved. Our acceleration should have been just enough to clear the closing blast door. But numbers were one thing, reality another. Now, fighting against the stopping power of the Gats, we were just shy of a photo finish. Down! Jack yelled. We all pressed ourselves as low as we could and braced for impact. The base of the blast door slammed into the windshield, shearing the top off the car above our heads, and our momentum did the rest. As the blast door dropped down into its slot behind us, we continued through and smashed into the far wall of the admitting bay. We had done it. It was less than perfect, but we were in. 
No strict need for timers now, but we still had to move fast. Wait for it, Duff hissed as he chucked two volleys of grenades in opposite directions. We covered our eyes and over the startled shouts of the guards heard the telltale of the flash bombs, followed momentarily by explosions. Duff sanctioned signature blind man exploding man maneuver. Despite the god-awful name it was a ploy the rest of us had come to respect. There was more shouting, accompanied by screams of pain. John was up next. She rose from the back seat, a warrior goddess, and began laying down cover fire. The two guards manning the turrets were wide open. The turrets may have had superior shielding to the tunnel, but here on the inside, the gunmen were sitting ducks. They fell quickly enough to John's attack. The rest of the guards, the ones that were still breathing, were scrambling for cover and returning fire in wild bursts. Jack emerged, now toting his own rifle, and with his back to John's they scoured the room with a rain of bullets. Taking position behind them, Duff watched as the guards, clearly on the defensive, took cover behind whatever they could find. He targeted them, signaled us to drop back into the car, and lobbed grenades their way. Dropping down, Jack and John reloaded, waited for the blast, and then were right back up and firing. Deafening, blinding, disoriented, and deadly. After a few repetitions of that maneuver, Jack called for a ceasefire. Thirteen down, he reported. One accounted for. If he's alive, plan A is still a go. Duff was looking around furiously, wildly scanning the admitting bay. But where the hell is he, then? If you don't see him, I'm setting up to blast our way in right now. Quiet, I hissed. Be still. Standing up, I tore away my echo costume to expose my arms and torso. I felt the radial awareness return. Hopping out of the car, I took a few steps and closed my eyes to get the lay of the room. I sensed the others behind me, the heat signatures of the gats and of the numerous bodies and a few body parts that were strewn around. One heat signature was shaking. Contact. I scrambled over a massive desk and tackled the last guard, who was crouched and hidden in fear. First raking him across the face with my claws, I closed in. He dropped his gun, whimpering, and began to plead for his life. I tore his armored vest away, and as I drove my claws into his stomach, I watched his eyes widen, then bulge in anguish. He started to scream. For a moment, everything stopped. He was just a boy. He couldn't have been older than twenty. A new recruit, then. I would have bet this was his first assignment out of training. Sure, why not? Show him the ropes at the vault. Nothing ever happens at the vault. I felt my stomach heave. This was all wrong. I should have been trading jokes with this kid, getting to know him the way I'd gotten to know Walter and using him, not erasing him. I should have been a ghost in his life, not his butcher. Red! Jack barked. Get the codes! This boy, this pup, wasn't a fighter. Not yet, anyway. He was new. And he was dying. My claws had gone deep and were slowly tearing the life out of him. Whatever future he had was gone. The smell of cordite and the metallic tinge of blood hung heavy in the air, bombarding my senses, bombarding my skin. It was something I had trained myself to ignore. Now? I, I couldn't block it out. Jack, John, and Duff were now screaming in unison. Red! I felt myself tighten up. Right. The job. Through clenched teeth, I hissed at the trembling boy, hating myself. Give us the codes and I'll end it. Closing my eyes, I forced my claws to spread wider. He gave us the codes. No, he screamed us the codes. Jack punched them in feverishly into the console. A second set of blast doors opened to the inner sanctum. With a quick slash, I withdrew my claws and slit the kid's throat. John couldn't keep her eyes off of me. I didn't look at her. I couldn't. It all seemed different now. I could taste the boy's blood on my hands. I shed the claws away, grimacing from the pain of it. It wasn't enough. Everything still tasted like ashes. This was not what I was supposed to be. As we hustled to the short, wide corridor that led to the main vault room, I paused only to reach into the destroyed sedan to pull out my scarf. The mask I was wearing, a simple generic face I had picked up over the years, didn't seem to suffice. Trotting down the corridor with the others, 
I wrapped the scarf around my head. It was only cloth, but for the years when I had problems controlling my skin, it had kept the world out. It felt like armor. It still did, like a security blanket made of Kevlar. Security cameras weren't picking up any movement in the building above, Duff reported as we entered into the massive vault room. We should be alone now. Bank heist upstairs must have cleared people out, Jack muttered. How long before reinforcements show? John asked. Hard to say, Jack said. Estimate ten to twenty minutes. We should have enough time, but it'll be metas. That was good enough to convince me to rush it. I wanted this job done. I wanted to get out of this place just to get out, get the goods to Tonda, and leave town. The fact that we'd be forced to flee into hiding no longer mattered. I wanted it. I needed to get away, to regroup and think. Forget the training, I was on the verge of panic. I heard this happen to a lot of professionals, that it was inevitable. I had never considered the possibility that it could happen to me. I really don't feel like dancing with Metas today, I muttered. Hard part's done. Let's just get the damn thing and go. Most buildings like this might have held a parking garage beneath it. Here, the basement levels were taken up by one huge room, 100 square feet and three stories tall with massive columns of concrete and steel. Here, you could find all manner of high-tech goodies. We passed by racks of weapons, tall caches of ammunition, and rows of armor before we came to a storage dome with a circular vault door. Jack and Duff immediately went to work, and in five minutes we scrambled for cover as Duff blew the safe. A staccato of small explosions, and we heard the clatter of pins as the door's seal was broken. In my haste, I rushed the dome and sped inside. The shelves were lined with odd devices. Some looked to be guns. Others were shaped like futuristic jetpacks, and others... Well, I couldn't say. A few objects were so exotic in their design they could have been high-tech sex toys for all I knew. The one thing everything in this dome shared was that each object was unique, a prototype. Our mark for this job was a modern marvel, a testament of man's ingenuity to make really big explosions come in really small packages. Don't ask me for the technical babble about this bomb, but it was enough to make men like Duff soil their shorts and drool just thinking about it. In short, some genius out there had devised a way to condense an explosive's critical mass. Another genius had taken it a step further and had separated the explosive into stable components, which exponentially increased the bang you got for your buck. Yet another genius had invented a novel carrier system, which used capillary action engraved into small computer chips to directly mix these components. The result? You could carry a small device the size of a wallet and, with a simple timer attachment, obliterate an area the size of a football field. The initial explosion would be enough to pulverize the blast radius, but a second incendiary effect would raise the area, leaving a charred mess. A bomb, a very high-tech and special bomb, named the Inferno. It wasn't hard to guess why Tonda wanted this. He had his own guys, his own geniuses who tinkered with doodads, and having this kind of technology would make his life much simpler. I wasn't thinking about it. At the moment, I didn't care what Tonda wanted it for. I just wanted out. I saw something that matched the description, and picking it up I was surprised how heavy the device was. Turning, I was about to pocket the bomb in a belt pouch when I noticed Jack had his pistols trained on me. Sorry, Brad. He seemed truly apologetic. This is Tonda's call. John and Duff appeared next to Jack. They didn't look happy about this. Careful not to make any sudden gestures, I held up the inferno and tossed it to Duff. He caught it deftly and turned away. John closed her eyes and followed him. Jack and I stared at each other for what felt like minutes. Then I asked the only thing I could. Why? Jack shrugged. Tonda can't trust you. He can't trust most metas, but especially one that can morph a space. Killing you is part of this job for us. It's just how it is. That's just the game. Right. The game. The goddamned game. See you in the next life, Jack growled, 
as he emptied his clips into me. What a day. Unlikely events bordering on divine intervention, befuddled by a sudden reawakening of morality, and now betrayed by the crew who had watched my back for five years. It had been a surreal day, almost dreamlike in its execution. The booming thunder from Jack's greased pistols was a wake-up call. I felt the barrage pound into me and the steel shells of the strong room bite into my back. I clutched at my chest and toppled forward. A curtain of red and black pain hazed everything. Jack turned away. Was he in such a rush to book? Enough to walk away without even checking for a pulse? Or did he just trust that sixteen bullets finding their mark in a man's chest was a pretty conclusive end? In either case, he was on the move and I was dead to him. Get up, Red. It can't end like this. It can't. The blood was flowing. I knew it, just as I knew I needed to fix it. I had kept a secret from all of them, and it was that I could fix this. I just needed to get past the pain. I could barely move. I could barely think. And I needed to concentrate to fix this. Startled yells came from a distance. I heard Jack in there shouting a warning. And another voice. A female voice. A familiar voice. A voice that had once heard in my ear all the love one man could stand. My wounds forgotten, I strained to listen and to slowly crawl through a pool of my own blood to the door to see what was going on. The shouts continued. We don't have time for this. I don't care if they're Echo Metas. Take them. Captain, we can take them. We need to reach the armory and get back out there. The people... Get that gun out of my face, asshat. Didn't you hear that? They're right behind us. It's four on three, Jack, and they've got that goddamn Echo armor. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. None of this matters now. They're coming down here and they're going to kill us all. I managed to peek out the door, and for a moment the pain went away, replaced by shock. A group of Echo operatives, Mach 1s by the look of them, and in the front, screaming at my crew, was Victoria Summers, call-signed Amethyst, Echo Mach 2, the same Echo Mach 2 we had run into last time in Atlanta. It was a Mexican standoff. Everyone had their weapons trained on each other, shouting to be heard over the din. But over them all, Amethyst commanded attention and screamed the words that brought Jack, John, and Duff to a puzzled halt. As for me, they were a painful reminder of the surreal, dreamlike quality of the day. This day just can't get any worse. Look, you morons! We're under attack by Nazi metatroopers! We're all under attack! You help us or we're all dead! Okay, I stand corrected. Jack hesitated. And that was all she needed. Amethyst took control immediately and commanded everyone to arm themselves from the weapons depot. Anything big and meaty that looks like it can punch through a tank, grab it, arm it, and aim it at the blast doors. Jack was done looking startled. He realized that Amethyst had meant him, John and Duff as well. He signaled the others to follow her. Dumbly, John and Duff scrambled for what looked like high-tech rocket launchers. The look on their faces... If I hadn't been swimming in my own blood, I might have laughed. They took a defensive position behind a short ledge, waist-high, lined with riot shields, and trained their hastily armed weapons at the tunnel. Where's Red Genie? Amethyst demanded. Dead, Jack answered, back in the proto-vault. Amethyst just looked at him, started to say something, but her attention was drawn back to the tunnel. There came a steady thumping of steel slamming into stone, a march of metallic feet crashing down in unison. Whoever they were, I muttered a curse at them. If they hadn't distracted her, Amethyst might have looked back, might have seen me lying in the strong room, weakly waving at her. She would have seen I was still alive. Would she have rushed to my side? I'd like to think so. Our lives had gone in such different directions it was hard to imagine us as those crazy kids, 
still, there was a time when nothing could have kept us apart, when nothing else mattered. Does that surprise you? Does it confuse you that I had a history with a Mach 2 that had sent us scurrying into hiding a couple of years back? It shouldn't. Like I said before, this was the worst day. The love of your life always plays a pivotal role on your worst day. Fire! Amethyst bellowed. As one, the seven defenders unleashed hell on the advancing troopers. Just moments before, they had been ready to kill each other. Now, they fought side by side against a metal-clad death squad. Nothing like a Nazi invasion to bring people together. And I, watching my world accelerate into a delirious cosmic opera of crazy, chuckled a maniacal laugh of confusion, continued to bleed, and felt myself black out. How long I was out, I really couldn't say. It couldn't have been that long, but in those moments, I saw my life. The parts I wanted to see. I wanted to see Victoria. Soft light streaming through white silk curtains, making her features burn as her eyes fluttered opened, and her first smile of the day warming me with a fiery glee that I could feel creeping through my whole body. Despite how it ended, how she left it, I chose to remember her that way. Vic had grown up in Manhattan, in the small neighborhood known as Hell's Kitchen. She was the youngest of three daughters of a simple shopkeeper and his wife. A bright, fair-skinned, blonde beauty, she believed in the tired old ideals of justice and honor and was raised to believe that people, at their core, were good. She fought for the underdog, hated bullies, and had a pretty solid left hook to back that up. Do you remember that July evening, years back, when a freak snowstorm ravaged the state of New York? That was the night we met. The coast took the brunt of the storm. Manhattan almost shut down that night. It made my life pretty miserable, I can tell you. I was a street urchin at the time, living in alleys and on deserted rooftops and when the weather got cold, in steam tunnels. Those days, I always wore the mask. My control over my skin was, shall we say, lacking finesse. Still a teenager, I was constantly fighting growth spurts and the mask would hide the ropes of skin that would sometimes erupt from my head. To survive, I had made theft my trade and the compact urban jungle of Manhattan my routes of escape. Up to that point, I had kept it simple and stolen from unattended homes or broken to small-time stores with no security. But that night I was caught by the sudden turn in weather. I was without shelter, in nothing but my mask, worn cut-off jeans and a ragged shirt, and I was freezing to death. So I tried something new. I tried to mug someone. Vic had been walking home late from a jazz competition. She was breathless and beaming with pride. In the open solo competition, her saxophone set had landed her second place. She had shown up her critics, the ones who had beaten her down with their caustic comments for months. That night, she had stepped away from the music theory, from the tightly regimented rehearsals, and had just bared her soul for all to hear. She felt wonderful, and despite the cold, she felt truly warm and alive. Part of that, I'm sure, was from the thick parka she was wearing. And for a young, freezing, and desperate-bred genie, that parka offered a warmth that was impossible to resist. I had never tried to mug anyone before. This was made painfully obvious from my awkward efforts to drag her into the alley. It was a first for her, too. The girl didn't even have the decency to be scared. She shrieked insults at me, which led to a pretty childish argument. Hey, we were kids. By the end, I remember letting my claws extend in disgust, tinged with petulant anger. Her eyes grew wide, at first with astonishment, and finally registering some fear. And then, inspired by true stupidity, I demanded she hand over the saxophone, too. Her eyes narrowed into feral slits. There was just no way. Not that night. I had pushed my luck. She began pelting me with ice. That confused the hell out of me. And it hurt, too. I didn't know where she was getting this ice. Jagged chunks of it just seemed to appear in her hands.
That was the night Vic Summers discovered her own mutant powers, which she used to make the Red Genie scream like a little girl while running for his life. By our next meeting, I had made a name for myself as a ghost, a spook of the neighborhood. The soiled red scarf I always wore as a mask had branded me for life. Get in before dark, mothers would caution their children, or the Red Genie will get you. My game had improved. I had learned to control my skin, to hug the shadows and to dance across rooftops in nightly raids. Doors that had seemed impenetrable before began opening up to me. That was the night of my first big job, a local club on the cusp of a successful run. Popular enough to have a steady weekend source of revenue, but new enough to have a limited security staff. The plan was simple, but it was the scariest thing I had ever tried. Grab the money as Red Genie, disappear into the crowd, and leave. If things got hairy, I was wearing the face of the club owner under my mask. That was also the night that a new, cold-powered superheroine named Amethyst made her debut in Hell's Kitchen. I'll spare myself the more embarrassing details and just say that the job was a major flop. I didn't get the money. I didn't even make it into the club. That night, all I got for my troubles was a clumsy escape, a new nemesis, and a mild case of hypothermia. The next couple of years started out rough. Amethyst was everywhere. I couldn't pull even simple jobs without her lurking about. We did the dance, had any number of street fights, and complete with premeditated insults and witty remarks, and continued to be thorns in each other's paws. But after a while, it became... fun. We fought constantly, but I never beat her in a straight fight, and she never managed to capture me. The dance continued, and I couldn't have asked for a better partner. I don't think either of us wanted a clear victory. We wouldn't admit it, but we defined each other. Every hero needs a villain, and vice versa. We needed each other, each forcing the other to be faster, smarter, tougher, to be better. I learned so much from sparring with her, how to fight, how to plan, and how to judge your opponents. That was an important lesson. Know everyone. Be they your enemies, your friends, or your victims. You controlled your destiny by predicting the greatest variable there was, the actions of other people. After a few tussles with Vic, I had made it my job to read people to get under their skin. If I couldn't deal with her in a straight fight, I figured I could get to her another way. By understanding her drive, by observing those she cared about, all to predict her actions, her reactions, and ultimately, her. This accomplished two things. First, I learned how to generalize people, classify them, and imitate them. I learned how to read people as open books. Second, I came to the startling conclusion that I was in love with Amethyst. I hadn't seen that coming. I should have. Did I mention she was beautiful? Well, it turned out it wasn't skin deep. This girl was beautiful. She always fell for my traps, each one and why. Because I put people in danger and she couldn't let people get hurt, even if she knew it was just a diversion so I could pull some fast job on the other end of the city. And every time she saved them. Every time. A few times, she even managed to catch up with me to foil whatever petty job I had planned. And she did all that because it was the right thing to do. How do you not fall in love with someone like that? And even after all my careful planning, my vigilant observations of her, there was still a lot I couldn't figure out. I did my homework. I learned her secret identity. That Amethyst was a poor kitchen's girl named Victoria Summers only deepened what love I had for her. She had these remarkable abilities, and she didn't use them for herself, or even to give her family a better life. She used them for any poor Joe who was victim to jerks like me. But the greatest mystery was about her feelings for me. Somewhere, somehow as our paths continued to bump and bang against one another, she had fallen in love with a jackass like me. She told me later that she'd known, from the first night we'd met, that I wasn't hopeless. She said she knew there was something in me worth her effort and patience. That did it. 
It had been so long since I'd heard anyone say those words to me. I believe in you, Rad. So I tried it. I tried being like her, a hero. I ran with Amethyst for months, and we stopped some pretty sick individuals. And we did it as a team. Before long, I had bared my soul to her. In return, she told me things that made me marvel at her curiosity, at her naivety. How did someone who faced the worst of humanity stay this unblemished, this pristine, even after all the horrors she had witnessed? I didn't know, or care. I just wanted to protect that innocence, to protect her. I had to laugh at myself. The plan had backfired. Learn to read people, predict what they'll do, and they're yours, right? Funny how that works out. When you draw someone close like that, you forget it's a two-way street. As you're digging around inside them, they're sinking their claws into you. By the fall of 1992, six months after we had confessed our love for one another, she wanted out. No. I don't want to see this, please. She had tried to talk herself into staying because she did love me. I knew that. But it wasn't enough, and in the end, I couldn't be the hero she needed me to be. There were extremes that I would go to, to fight the bastards that ran organized crime. And I'm not talking about bravery. I'm talking about brutality. We had been fighting a losing war with the local mobs. Any time we felt we were close to busting them, to exposing them, someone we needed would die. An informant or a witness, the mob saw them dead by morning. It had to stop. I was determined to stop it. So I targeted the bosses. I made their lives hell. When that didn't work, I resorted to beating them senseless. When that didn't work, I resorted to beating them senseless. In a few cases, I overdid it a little. The last boss I killed, Vic caught me in the act. It didn't matter that he had committed murders a hundred times worse. When Vic walked in on that, she saw me as one of them. A murderer. She was scared of me. No. No. But leaving me was complicated. We were expecting, the two of us. We had just learned of it. A child. Our child. But on that day she came to me, deathly pale, and told me she couldn't do it. She knew how I felt, that I would never consent, could never stay away from my own child. And so she had made the decision alone. The abortion clinic. That's enough. Enough? No, not enough. Not nearly enough. I still blamed her. A big part of me hated her. Wanted to hurt her. You see it, Red? You see what you did? You did it. Everything you tried to protect her from, you did it to her yourself. Now go tell her. And pray it isn't too late. Amidst shouts and the exchange of energy blasts and explosions, I came to. Rolling over, I looked down and saw the riddled holes in my chest and the blood seeping out. But Jack's bullets, designed to puncture skin and tear through flesh, hadn't quite done their job. Like I said, I'd kept it a secret even from my team. My skin wasn't just skin deep. A new trick I'd been working on. It was my ace in the hole. Compact layers of skin on the torso, a living sheath meant to deaden the impact of gunfire. Out of some deep reservoir I didn't know I had, I shoved the pain aside, concentrated, focused in a way I'd only tried once or twice, and with an intensity I'd never felt before. Because this was new. While my skin had kept the entry wounds shallow, I was still in real danger from bleeding out. I started growing the tissue that would push the bullets out ahead of it. Skin, but, well, it was my skin. My skin, whatever the hell it is. I stopped bleeding, and one by one, sixteen bullets squeezed out of my torso like a kid popping zits to clatter down on the concrete. All the while, out there, explosions, the whine of energy weapons, screaming and shouting and cursing, the metallic taste of blood and the smell of hot metal and burning plastic. 
I lay there for just a second. Less than that. I was tired in a way you just can't imagine. But I didn't have time to be tired. You can rest when you're dead. Out there, the woman I had loved, the woman I still loved, was fighting for her life. I knew it had to be that dire, where she would never, ever have joined forces with my crew. I grabbed the first thing that looked big, mean, and nasty, flipped a switch on the butt of it, and as it powered up, dashed out the door to throw myself down between Vic and Jack and behind what was left of the barrier. We gotta stop meeting like this, darling, I said, as Vic's eyes jerked over to her right, saw me, widened with shock, and then went alight with joy. Even now I couldn't resist a smart-ass quip. Jack's eyes flickered to me and back to the fight. I should have known, he muttered. Everyone you ask is going to tell you they just weren't prepared for their first sight of those Nazi armored troopers. Everyone is right. Nothing could have prepared us for this. Hitler's wet dream. Serious. Everything that crazed house painter could have thought up, everything any of his mad scientists could have thought up, all packaged into chromed and enameled, unstoppable death machines. Now, after miles of videotape and millions of photographs, hours of analysis and a phalanx of eminent experts, people are used to seeing them. But that first sight? It was more than a jolt to the gut. It was a kidney punch, a brick to the head, and a karate kick to the face, all at once. This is evil, and it has come to kill us all. And damned if I was going to let it. I aimed whatever it was that I was carrying at the Nazis and pulled the trigger. And nothing happened. I cursed and was about to throw it away when my skin told me that whatever my eyes said, there was something going on. Something building pressure. There was a pressure wave out in front of us, and the Nazi started to take a step, and couldn't. It was like an obscene version of a street mime in the classic walking against the wind. They tried to move, and it was in slow motion, shoving against something, a wind that wasn't there. They even leaned into it, as Vic and the rest sent a hell of incendiary and explosive rockets into their midst. But my toy was only slowing them down. It wasn't doing a thing about their arm cannons. And they let loose with those, forcing us to duck behind an increasingly smaller barrier, forcing me to move my gun out of harm's way. They got Duff. He was just a fraction of a second too late. One of the energy blasts took his head right off, vaporized it, and the headless body flopped down next to John. I tried to get Vic's attention then. This might be the last time, the only time I'd be able to tell her how sorry I was, how sorry for everything, but there wasn't any time and she couldn't have heard me over the blasts, the scream of the energy cannons, John's stream of curses. We weren't stopping them. We could slow them, but we couldn't stop them. And if they hadn't known about the vault before, if they had only followed Vic and her crew in by accident, they surely knew what it was by now. They'd have everything that was in the vault, of which the Inferno was only one part, and probably even not the most important. The Inferno. That was when I knew. I knew the Inferno bomb was the key. We needed to let them in, let them past us, and blow the vault with the Inferno. I made a dive for Duff's body, scrambling through his clothing, his pockets, trying to find the damn thing. My hand felt it in his vest, and I looked up to see every Nazi trooper had his energy cannon trained on me. They'd blasted away the last of the barrier over Duff's body, and now I was in the open. I heard the whine as all the weapons ramped up. My skin wasn't going to stop that. You know how they say in moments like this, everything moves in slow motion? It does. Just like some cheesy special effect. I watched as Vic launched herself at me. I felt myself falling over as she hit me. I slid sideways, behind more of the barrier, out of harm's way. I watched her glow white then vanish in a crossfire of a dozen energy beams, taking the blasts meant for me. The world stopped. She was gone. Forty-five heists, thirty-two meaningless trysts, six Nazi troopers, and fifteen years too late, I had finally found peace with us, but I would never get to tell her. 
I would never get to hold her again or see that winsome smile meant just for me. All the good that was Victoria Summers was gone in a flash of light, and my world crumbled in the wake of that blast. I lost it. I didn't care anymore. I know I must have been screaming something, and it must have been coherent, because Jack, John, and the three Mach 1s went wide and around, letting the troopers shoot their way past us and into the vault itself, dodging blasts as they ran. I screamed at them, taunting them, moving, always moving, getting them to chase me deeper in. I saw John go down, then two of the Mach 1s. I didn't care. All I cared about was living long enough, just long enough to take those bastards out. Once they were well into the vault, I turned and dove for the tunnel, somersaulting and rolling, coming to my feet and dropping the inferno to the ground. Jack and the last Mach 1 and I ran up the tunnel, through the delivery bay, and made for the outside. The troopers were a lot slower. They turned as one and started their slow march towards us, and I waited until they were right on top of that bomb. Ignition! I screamed, and I hit the remote trigger and turned to watch as the other two hit the dirt. They were right to call it an inferno. The vault glowed a magnesium flare white. The columns holding up the skimming collapsed, and the whole building above fell down, down onto the troopers. An enormous cloud of rubble spewed out of the tunnel doors, slamming into us, throwing us back to land in battered heaps on the ground. I blacked out for a moment. It couldn't have been long. When I came to and crawled to my feet, the only sounds were the ticking bits of falling rubble, explosions in the far distance, and Jack's feet hitting the pavement as he booked out of there. Vic's last Mach 1 and I stared at each other through the settling dust. I could tell what was on his mind. This was the infamous Red Genie. And any other day, if I hadn't been on the ten most wanted list before, after blowing into the vault I would have been. On the other hand, compared to what had been in here with us and what was plainly still out there, I was a pretty pitiful minnow among the piranha. The world as we both knew it had just done a complete 180. There were bigger fish to gaff. And I knew what Vic would have done. Would have asked me to do. Look, I said hoarsely. Let me help you save whoever we can. Arrest me after, okay? Wordlessly, he nodded, got to his feet, and offered me a hand up. Together, we went out into hell. The wait is over. The first book of Steve Livy's Aquapura trilogy is available now from Subatomic Books. Meet Crixisoran, a plumber on an epic odyssey of redemption through an ancient world. Want to try before you buy? Listen to the free audiobook or download the free ebook or subscribe to a chapter a day through your email. Log on to www.aquapuratrilogy.com for more information. Echo is hiring. Log on to www.echometahumans.com and join the Echo Mock Street team. Your mission? Spread the word about the Secret World Chronicle.